inaugural episode of New Caribbean Voices, People Tree Press's literary podcast. We'll be featuring Caribbean literature from across the region and the diaspora. My name is Malaika Booker and I'm your host and curator for this podcast series. I will be speaking with Jeremy Poynton, the founder and managing editor of People Tree Press, about New Caribbean Voices. We'll hear from the Trinidadian novelist, Barbara Jenkins. She will share an excerpt from her latest novel. And lastly, Shivani Ramlachan, our resident book reviewer, will give us a roundup of books to look out for. Jeremy, I'm going to begin by asking you about New Caribbean Voices. How did the idea for New Caribbean Voices come about? And why did you decide to create this podcast? Can you also tell us why you decided to call it New Caribbean Voices? I think it was putting two kinds of experiences together, or two kinds of awareness together. You know, one is the awareness that, that, for instance, that where you have writers who are performing live, they re- you know they're able to reach a kind of an audience who are not perhaps normally re- reached by books so that for instance we we had a really good event at Yorkshire Playhouse the theatre with Khadija Ibrahim doing her another crossing poems and there was a large kind of enthusiastic audience few of whom i think would be regular book readers but were kind of bowled over by their poems. The poems spoke to them, spoke to their experience. So that's kind of one thing, that you, you recognise that there is something about the kind of the, the spoken, the oral, the heard, that works in a way that for some people, the books don't work. Um, I, you know, I, I'm a great radio listener. I'm, not, I'm only just beginning to get into podcasts and the idea of podcasts. But I like, you know, I like radio as, as a form. Um, the other kind of the, the, why the new Caribbean Voices is is because of course there was a Caribbean Voices program. It was a BBC program that began, I think, about nineteen forty eight, and it lasted into the sixties. And um, it provided it, it was a over, it was a Caribbean over it, it was a BBC program done from London, broadcast back to the West Indies. A bit bit kind of colonial, but. It had. It was blessed by, in in its kind of most dynamic phase, by a, a very an enthusiastic editor called Henry Swansea, who was a kind of fairly radical, for BBC terms, a fairly radical kind of Irishman, who set out with the objective that you know he really wanted Caribbean writers to write in their own idiom. I suppose at some, you know, there was a, perhaps a stage where there was a kind of perhaps a degree of um, so the tropical exotic about it slightly, but not, but not, but not much. And but I think you know he he wanted people to write in patois when they want, where, you know, where patois was how people spoke. You know, he he was interested in a wide range of the ways in which people might be writing poetry. Um, so that program which went on for at least a dozen years, was the programme that gave the first kind of opportunities for uh, for people like George Lamming. Uh, Sam Selvam was a real regular on the programme. 
VS Naipaul was on stage, an editor of the programme. Edgar Mittelholzer was, you know, was an editor at another stage. So virtually, uh, Andrew Salky, so virtually every slight narrowness of Caribbean voices was it, it was predominantly a male writers thing. I mean, they were largely the male writers who went up, you know, who came, who set off from Jamaica and Trinidad and, and so on and settled in, in London. Um, there were women writers at the time. And I, I, mean, I certainly heard from somebody like Beryl Gilroy, who we published much later, that there was, this was very much a kind of boys club and that women were not kind of really welcomed into that kind of boys club. But there were people like, for instance, like Sylvia Winter was around in London at the same time. And Beryl told me about how she and Sylvia used to go off dancing in London and so on. Um, so there, you know, there, there are stories by women in the Caribbean voices, but they're a fairly small kind of percentage of the of the total work there. So I mean, it, it was it, it was an immensely important radio program because for a number of things, it brought people from across the region. So people, writers in Jamaica who wouldn't have a clue what anybody was doing in Trinidad or in Guyana were able to kind of sit to see what other kinds of writing was going on at the same time. I suppose it was also writing that, I mean, it, you, you know, you can't say that the BBC stimulated because there were things happening in the Caribbean at the same time. It was clearly the period of the, 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 the kind of, of nationalist sentiment. It was a time where people like um, Frank Collymore in, in, in Barbados had set up BIM as, as a literary magazine and was, was doing the same kind of thing, but not reaching so many people. It was the same thing that Arthur Seymour was doing in Guyana, where he set up Kaiko Rao. So it's the beginnings of the kind of small literary magazine in that post-war period, where you know people people are running, you know, thinking about independence as a real kind of issue and possibility. So. Caribbean Voices taps into that kind of sentiment, but brings it from a right across the region. And more importantly, it sends it back to the region. Now, I don't know, there's probably, there are one or two quite interesting books have been written about the Caribbean Voices period. Of course, the thing that you can't ever, ever nail down is how many people it reached. Uh, you know, there are people, you know, you can find little, little things about people tuning in their radios to listen to the programme and, and, and hearing it. And you certainly know there, there were responses to it. One response to it was that apparently that some of the kind of Jamaicans listening to it didn't like the fact that people read the stories in, <laughs> in Patois voices. You know, so they wanted something that was much more kind of BBC and elevated. So um, in that, you know, in that, you, you, there are some clues about how the programme was received. But undoubtedly, one of the things it did was to stimulate other writing. Um, so that, you know, the proportion, the proportion of kind of what was sent in and what was broadcast is, you know, the, is, um, you know, the massive disparity between those two things. Um, and one of the things that you kind of notice is, yes, the, the Selvans continued, the Lammings continued, but there are a lot of very interesting writers from that period who've disappeared, totally disappeared from the scene, who didn't go on to publish and so on. Mm. Who, you know, where you can see, see a real talent there. Um, so, you know, one of the things about wanting to do the new Caribbean voices 
is about sort of a, perhaps trying to break out of the book reading network toward you know towards um, getting you know sort of getting an, a, a broader awareness uh, and tapping into the fact that people like podcasts and things. So that was that was the kind of motivation behind it. And I suppose what struck me um, in terms of someone who's going to be curating the the podcast is the fact that a lot of the Caribbean writers that are on your books and you publish you publish um, fiction, non-fiction, and you've published poetry are really good readers of their work. So yes. um, it'll be a very vibrant podcast and, and very contrasting styles and from very different parts of the region as well as the diaspora. So you have this quite large contingent of writers to, to pull from, I suppose. Yes, I mean, certainly one of the hopes is that we, we can build up a, a, a real kind of bank of, of people reading their own work that's accessible, you know, that remains accessible and so on. Mm. Um, you know, so that, uh, I, I mean, for me, it's always important to hear people reading. And some, you know, sometimes when you, when you've, Sometimes you need to hear somebody read to really get get what it is they're doing, where, where you can start beginning to read with their rhythms and, and things, and that you know. So I think that's an important kind of aspect of that. Um, I suppose the other part of it, of course, is, is that we want a a constant attention. You know, so I mean, I've just you know, we we, we there's just been. An open book program. Mario Lafrostrup, Jacob Ross was on the on the program, um, talking about our new collection of short stories. But I, you know, you suspect that for the BBC tick, um, it might be another year before they think, oh, we should do something Caribbean again. So I mean, one of the sort of things about that is to think, yeah, that the, there's a, you know, there is a kind of listenership. Who would like? Who I think would like to, to to have a much more regular access to talk about the the you know the new books coming out to hear the hear writers' voices to listen, be able to listen to discussions. I mean, at some at some stage, you know, hopefully to actually respond to some of those things. I'm not quite sure how we will do that yet. I mean, we've got to get the thing on the road first. Yeah. Um, but I think you know so that. I mean, all sorts of ideas like, you know, why shouldn't why shouldn't we do a, a book of bedtime? We you know there's so much good kind, there's so much good new fiction coming out that would lend themselves to that kind of thing. That you know we should we you know that's something we should do. I mean, it, it puzzles me that in a sense that, I mean, given that radio in the Caribbean itself is still an important, very important medium, that very little seems to be done around literature, and about kind of you know. I mean, there, there have been some important kinds of um, soap, soap opera things, you know, long-running things, which apparently had, you know, always had, had big kind of enthusiastic kind of listenerships. Um, but, you know, that perhaps not that much around the fact that, you know, there are, there are so many good stories around. It doesn't, it, it isn't, doesn't take so much to kind of edit a story to make it fit a, fit a kind of um, thing. So... Those are some of the those are some of the kinds of goals of Caribbean New Voices. That was Jeremy Pointing and myself in conversation about New Caribbean Voices. Now we've come to a section of the podcast which will be a regular feature. It's the part where we invite 
authors and poets from People Tree Press's large, very extensive catalogue to read an excerpt of their work. Today we'll hear from the award-winning Trinidadian writer Barbara Jenkins. The author Robert Antoni describes her work as often wickedly funny, always performing Trini. Jenkins, whose debut short story collection, Sick Transit Wagon, won the Guyanese Prize for Literature, will be sharing a tantalizing excerpt from her 2018 novel, The Right's Place. Chapter 13, Neptune in Pisces. She looks out the window and there below is the boy. She calls out, up here. He looks up and then quickly looks down. He turns his head and shuffles from one foot to the next, as if debating whether to go away or stay. She is wondering what he's thinking, whether he's embarrassed at seeing her again, or worse yet, ashamed. She can feel herself softening, becoming flushed and feverish just by looking at him. She's afraid he might turn around and go. He's probably thinking, the place is closed, so why is he hanging around? He could be wondering whether she feels he's somehow done something wrong. He could be fumbling for reason he can give for being there. She's afraid that if this moment isn't seized, he might never come again. What can she do? What can she say to make him stay? What do you want? Can I help you? Is there something you'd like? None of the above, she decides. Too crude, too flippant, dismissive even. She calls, can you wait a bit? I'll come down. She opens the door and they stand facing each other. Like a reenactment of the way they stood in the bathroom that day, he remembers too. He's looking at his feet where she first touched him, but even looking at his feet, not safe, he thinks, as his blood rises and his face glows. He says, Miss Indira, you have any soup left? She shakes her head. She waves her hands. She makes a face. Uh, no, sorry. He looks crestfallen, he, she says. Hungry? That question again. It sends a shockwave through his feet and up to his head. His feet remember where the question led. His head remembers too. Could do with something, yes. He looks up and he sees her face in a broad smile and he smiles back. Is not for me, is for Gran Gran. She's standing there, smiling and leaning against the doorway, listening to him, savoring his being there and enjoying the effect her being near is having on him. He knows he's talking too much but must say something to give a reason for coming to see her again. Grand, grand, not too well. He knows he's sounding foolish. I, I was thinking I could carry some of Miss Fritzy's soup for her and Maisie and for the little boy. He knows he's sounding like a complete babbling idiot and only nonsense coming out. But it looked like the soup finished early today. We didn't have soup today. Fritzy's taking a break. She had plenty to do the last few days. Uh, thanks, Miss Indira. Well, I'm going home now. I'll cook something. is not a problem. You can cook? Yes. Why is he not stopping there? He don't answer the question. My grandmother teach me to do everything. Oh, God, I'm talking too much again. She says she getting old, and one day when she closed her eyes, me and Maisie would have to fend for ourselves and small man, Maisie little baby. So, what can you cook? His heart pumping fast. 
his mouth dry up, his palms oozing sweat, his head feeling light as if his brain had shrunk or disappeared. What does he like to cook? He can't think of a single thing. He runs his tongue over his lips. Maybe if they're lubricated, words can come out. One pot. One pot? Cook up. Cook up with rice. Rice and other things. Uh, meat. Uh, peas. Uh, other things. You want to show me what you can do? Miss Indira, her car stopped. Gran ran home by herself, and she not well. But you will have to cook when you reach home, not so. So why not cook here and take some home with you? She stands aside to allow him free passage, even while he's wondering whether he should stay. He doesn't know whether he wants to go in or to run away. Is not just Grand Grand, is what he's getting himself into. His body telling him what it want him to get into. His brain not telling him anything at all. It must be in a coma. He shakes his head to wake up his brain. No, Indira asks. No, no, I didn't mean no. I was just shaking my head. Yes, he drops his head. It's more an admission than an agreement. He goes in and follows her up the stairs. In the kitchen, she pulls out a bag of rice from a cupboard and rests it on the counter. She opens the fridge. See anything you can use? He bends down, peers into shelves and pulls open the vegetable drawers. A bag of carrots, a bundle of bhaji, a half dozen okras, a large chunk of pumpkin, half a purple cabbage, four pimentos, a lime. He takes out everything. She opens the freezer door. Meat? She comes closer and pulls out for his inspection first a leg of lamb, a tray of chicken thighs, and finally a bag of chicken breasts. He's shaking his head. Not enough time to thaw and season any of that. He reaches over her shoulder and lifts a packet of boneless saltfish from the door shelf. This will do. He washes the excess salt from the saltfish and puts the fillets to revive in a bowl of cold water. She takes out a large cast iron pot and the cooking oil. He chops onions and garlic, slits and de-seeds the pimentos. She picks Ive and oregano from the window box, her hand brushing his while she passes the herbs. He puts the pot on the stove and pours in some oil, adding the onions and seasoning while she rinses and shreds the saltfish. She drops the pieces of saltfish into a bowl. She shows him her hand, to which fragments of salted cod still cling. He takes her hand in his. He spreads open her hand like the parting of the petals of a flower, stroking one finger at a time until her palm lies flat in his. He brings her hand to his lips. His tongue traces a path along her timeline, her love line, and the girdle of Venus. Its tip searches the clefts between her fingers. She feels the path of his tongue run in a surging current from each finger, each groove and cleft, each traced line to flicker and flare in her groin. He sucks her thumb, licks clean her fingertips, its fishy saltiness tasting like tender private skin sheened with new sweat. Then he measures and washes the rice, 
adds it to the aromatics, puts in the soul fish, chops an add oak rose, pumpkin, bhaji. He shakes out half a packet of coconut milk powder while she's stirring the pot. He stands behind her, holds her hand, guiding it round and around the sizzling pot while she stirs. She leans back into him, pressing the length of her back and the width of her back against his chest, his hip girdle, his thighs. He reaches across and picks up the water jug. He pours just enough to cover the contents of the pot and an inch to spare. And together they stir the pot, right arm along right arm, a slender vine on a sturdy tree branch, his left hand pressing flat across her navel so that he can feel the surging in her belly and she feels the heat of his palm radiating to her core, melting her marrow. The fingers of her left hand running tingling circles along the back of his thigh, behind his knee until bubbles appear, breaking on the surface of the liquid. He guides one last deep stir, bringing to the top what had settled below, puts on the lid, lowers the flame, takes her by the hand and leads her to her bed. The book she's been reading, Failed Fathers and Successful Sons, slides off the satin bedspread to land face down on the floor. Wow. That was Barbara Jenkins reading an excerpt, Neptune in Pisces, chapter 13 of her novel, The Brightest Place. Hmm. I don't know about you, but listening to that, it reminded me of what my mom would say, that there's a lot of salt in that pot. I mean, what with the kitchen dish, the cooking happening with the hands, and all the touching and thing with the hands, there's a lot of tantalizing stroking and cutting and all kind of thing was happening in that story it makes you want to read the novel so if you're taken by that story like I am check out Barbara Jenkins The Rights Place we'll now hear the book reviews roundup from Shivani Ramachan we're very lucky to be working with Shivani and that Shivani is a resident reviewer on the new Caribbean Voices podcast. Shivani is a Trinidadian poet and literary critic, arts reporter and book blogger who writes reviews for Caribbean literature for Trinidad and Tobago's Sunday Arts section, is reviews editor for the Caribbean Beat magazine, as well as being deputy editor of the Caribbean Review of Books. Hi, I'm Shivani Ramlochan and I'm here with your book review roundup for the new Caribbean Voices podcast. I am especially excited to be talking to you about books in this inaugural episode. And if, perchance, you're brand new to Caribbean literature, I've got good news for you. There's more of it than you can ever read in one lifetime, perhaps several. And it's as far-ranging in scope, taste, subject matter, and register as any other large umbrella of lit you've sheltered beneath. For veteran lovers of Cariblet, thanks for being here, and for continuing to read and imagine the Caribbean through books. 
I'm talking to you from Trinidad and Tobago, where I work and live. Some of you will have been here for the 2018 NGC Bookers Lit Fest in April, which is always a whirlwind of bookish activity, and this year was no different. One of the most exciting things to happen each year at Bookers is the launch of new books, and two People Tree Press titles that I've been wildly excited for for years made their debut. Danielle Boudifortune's Do Songs and Barbara Jenkins, The Writer's Place. They're both firsts. For Danielle, Doe Songs is her debut collection of poems, and for Barbara, The Writer's Place is her first novel. To fully disclose, I am close friends with Danielle, and my blurb appears on the back of Doe Songs. I want you to believe me when I say, though, that if I didn't know Danielle from Eve, this book would still reach into the spleen heart of me and demand attention. Danielle's poems are dense without being cloying, inventive without being precocious, and they speak to a world that mirrors the often vacant shell of what we suppose to be modern living. Those songs is a fire starter of a first book. It features some of Danielle's previous award-winning work, alongside newer poems that are deeply preoccupied with motherhood, with this savage and tender links between creator and created, between woman and forest, between world and spirit. I've been living with Danielle's work for a long time, but the assembly of these poems, their curation and sequencing, the care they give to their arrangement on the page is stunning. Look out for utterly spellbinding poems like Boa Gravida, Five Songs for Petra, and one of my all-time favorites, A Hammer to Love With, which contemplates the dangerous yoking of love and violence with a crisp and tender precision that always rocks me to the core, no matter how many times I read it. Those songs is waiting for you. Don't linger. Run to it. Barbara Jenkins' To Write This Place is a rare thing. Unputdownable for his novel. I didn't know what to expect from a debut novel from Jenkins, whose first book, the collection of short fiction called Sick Transit Wagon, is a masterclass in navigating nostalgia, regret, aging, and childhood. I suspect what I like best about The Writer's Place is how it needles at your expectations of what life in Trinidad looks like, even for those of us who are from here, who live here. Indira Gabriel is the protagonist of The Writer's Place, and her backstory alone would be compelling enough to drive most of the narrative in the novel. She's a complication, a person who derives confidence from haute couture, a savvy businesswoman in the making, and a refugee from her own violent, mystery-shrouded past. The bulk of the novel is set in a rum shop called The Writer's Place, and I deeply appreciate what Jenkins has done here. In framing the novel as a rum shop novel, among many other things, she completely blasts open this idea of the village bar as a creatively barren place. On the contrary, all manner of hijinks, ne'er-do-well schemes, political standoffs, entrepreneurial barbecue forays, and yes, some seriously hot lovin', all transpire here, every bit of it told with utter credibility. The politics in the writer's place is pointed, but even if you don't agree with everything it says, you can't deny how beautifully, comically, and sometimes heartbreakingly it says it. 
Other people tree books launched with Bocas that you should absolutely check out include Anthony Joseph's Ketch and Savvy Naipaul Akal's The Naipauls of Nepal Street, both of which I'm really looking forward to reading soon. Further afield, for work not published by People Tree, you need to spend time with Rosamund S. King's Rock Salt Stone, published by Nightboat Books. Rock Salt Stone recently won a Lambda Literary Award for Lesbian Poetry, and it's a journey into queerness, blackness, and survival of bodies at risk that's challenging, erotic, and utterly dismantling. You go into these poems thinking there's a preset number of ways to map both pain and pleasure, and emerge with an entirely amplified sense of what the poem as an activist arm can do. Also pick up Akio Behes's The Tower of the Antilles, published by Akashic Books, which is a collection of short fiction that navigates the psychogeographic borders between Cuba and the United States, making it, very starkly, the kind of work that should echo loudest in 2018. And it does, not because it's topical, but because these stories are written with heat and desperation and a real curiosity for what happens to people who have historically been bereft of options. Finally, let me return to People Tree to share how strongly I feel about Jacob Ross's recently published collected short stories, Tell No One About This. These stories are predominantly set in Grenada, and you could call them an ode to that land, but I think the book roams beyond that summary definition and becomes a cartography of multiple consciousnesses. These short fictions are ardently concerned with the interior lives of Grenadian women, from stern matriarchs to recalcitrant schoolgirls. The natural landscape of Grenada also figures strongly in several of these stories, often with enough determination or feral indifference to represent its own character. All of these are reasons to love what Jacob has done here. In these stories, it spanned decades, and what I love best is how, with such seeming effortlessness, we're pulled into the worlds that Jacob makes. I never doubt. I'm in the hands of a master storyteller here. One who knows that the golden standard of erasing enough of your ego to let the work the incredible, luminous work, show you everything it needs to about love and loss and why some people walk into the sea. That's it for me. Thanks for listening, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about Caribbean books in the not-so-distant future. Till then, be well, and read like your life depends on it. Thank you for tuning in to New Caribbean Voices, People Three Press Literary Podcast. The podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Clarissa Luard Award for Independent Publishers in the Arts Council of England. I'd like to say a special thanks to our producer, Melody Triumph, and thank you for listening. Please tune in and look out for more episodes of New Caribbean Voices. I'm Laika Booker and I've been your host for this episode.